and I vote not to introduce. Welcome to the Crusader Talk Show. We're the faculty and staff of St. Joseph Academy, a traditional, Catholic, classical TK-12 school. On the show, we'll talk about some of the most important topics for society today. We'll chat about education, virtue, faith, morals, and spirituality. But we'll also talk about some lighter topics, too. We hope you enjoy. And we're here with the Crusader Talk Show. To my left is... Mr. Hudson. Mrs. Burton. Mr. Heinzel. Mr. Murray, the greater, not to be confused with the lesser. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Murray, the lesser, is not here to defend himself. (laughs) Correct. And I'm older, so... And uh, by popular demand, we are here doing a part two of our first podcast about classical education. So who would like to start us off? Well, so we had some students who listened in and really enjoyed it, right? Does anybody get any firsthand of what they thought? Uh, A lot of people liked it. They didn't go into detail, but on the Instagram, we had some great comments like fiery episode, keep it going kind of thing. So good, good feedback. All right. Well, so maybe someone who was present for the previous discussion could recap um, where the conversation started and left off. Yeah, Mr. Hudson. Yeah, I think you would be great to do that. <laughs> so he, he was here. So. He was here. That's true. That's true. I was. Uh, so we had started talking about the purpose of a classical education and how it was different from a an education that you would get in other schools nowadays so basically no common core that's, that's <laughs> and and for the idea of that you're educating the whole person and the point to particularly uh for the purpose of virtue and wisdom and we started talking about some of the differences in not just a classical school but a catholic classical school as well yeah i thought the biggest takeaways for students that i talked to and for others who listened to it um was Joseph's main point on putting first things first and second things second. And then that being kind of our uh, standing point as a Catholic education of what our first things are. So then where do we go? How does that frame everything that we're doing? So maybe is that where we start out today is what are what are our first principles for education? What's what's yeah, maybe the first principle? Yeah, I think that would be great. Like as we ended, as we capped last episode i feel like we were only scratching the surface and so having a part two a continuation uh, i think is really important so yeah i think that's a a great way to start this one so who's gonna begin okay (laughs) so i guess the purpose i mean so moderns the the ocean in which we all swim and live um would think of education the purpose of education to be like head knowledge or you know maybe the particularly woke and intellectual person might say schools are supposed to teach people how to think. Um, so maybe that's part, maybe that's the aspect of education that we could start with. And, um, we might propose that truth is related to, and some, in some way important for the educational enterprise, the, the process of educating and goals behind educating. Yeah, that's we we got a little bit into uh, that aspect on last episode, and that's why I think to really go in deeper, uh, this idea that in modern education of uh, what we would say is relativism un- is undergirding 
the modern education. And so you might have this uh, attitude towards truth as what is practical, what is utilitarian, um, might have an idea of truth of math and sciences, maybe some empiricism, some scientism, and materialism driving the education system. So it could be you know, utilitarian, this is going to get me somewhere. We were talking last episode to get me the job, to make me the money. Uh, but also having this idea of truth as truth is obtained in math and science. That's where you got the real facts. And the other disciplines might be fun. They might be important in some ways, but they're subjective. It's just sharing opinions. We're going off subjective fancies. And so, I mean, in classical education, we're fighting up against not just in education, but society at large of this big ism that's pervading out there called relativism. Yeah, so, and I think even in our present culture, at least the trajectory that it's on, math is not even, like the objectivity of math is not even necessarily off the table for the, the oh, worst. true. I mean. It is true. Yeah. The Can reason, we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I was, um, I was listening to another podcast, Podcastception, um, talking, I think it was Council of Trent with Trent Horn, talking about the, um, this atheist mathematician who does not agree with the woke left. So he put out as sort of a troll that um, turns out now one plus one is actually racist and people took it very seriously and did not know that he was joking and came back with all of these reasons of how it could be racist. So firstly, the fact that we have used math, you know, to count slaves and just because we've used math for racism, it therefore makes math itself racist. Which Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have not counted any slaves. Never. <laughs> the only math teacher sitting at this table is you, Mrs. Burton. <laughs> Feel the pressure. I, for one, am okay with math being racist. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm here to tell you it's not. <laughs> just because you, someone used some truth for a ill purpose does not make that truth you know that's, exclusive to that's that that's about as purpose. smart as saying I'm racist because math is in my name yeah. <laughs> math you hey <laughs> that's pretty good um, and then on the other hand you know it's it's a, a western idea that one plus one has to equal two and maybe other people could come up with other ways where one plus one might not equal two and, and all this sort of nonsense. Um, so even, yeah, it's boiled down to even the, what we would consider incredibly, obviously objective subjects are now on the table for our, is it even true? In that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've never heard that. It's, it's also funny considering the numbers we use are Arabic numerals, right, which, which <laughs> and algebra itself doesn't even come from the West. Uh, yeah, it's all just lovely. <laughs> anyway, so, there. So, so relativism. Yes. Uh, let, let's talk about maybe philosophy, theology, literature. Um, we could contrast maybe how relativism drives these disciplines in non-classical schools, and then what we're trying to do as a classical school. So, how does it? I, I guess what I'm asking is, how does it become subjectivized? How does it become relativized? What are what's the common language right. or yeah, how is that implemented? So I think cool. one thing you might see in um, schools unlike our own would be uh, when when looking at a piece of fine art or looking at a piece of literature, uh, the primary question asked of students uh, 
might be what does this mean to you how does this make you feel how does this mm. make you feel that's even worse <laughs> that's a lot worse than what does this mean to you <laughs> but no both it's about how you understand and how you process the work of art the painting the sculpture the novel the poem as opposed to what we should be doing which is what well, which would be trying to understand it on its own grounds and letting it shape us. Mm-hmm. Or like what was the intent versus like how does it... Well, and that's something you will hear nowadays is that it's impossible to actually know the author's or artist's intent. Yeah. And that you can't try to uh, interpret it from looking at the picture or reading the novel that you don't actually know what they're thinking. So I think that's the first step of any form of relativism is whatever the truth is in a certain discipline or in a certain realm of thought, that truth is inaccessible to us because of X, Y, Z. You know, you can't go back and talk to Shakespeare. So therefore, Shakespeare's meaning is completely disconnected from anything that we could get from reading Shakespeare. And so that's, yeah, that's the first chink, I guess, in the classical Western armor. Uh, Not so much a chink in our armor, but the first arrow that they try and pierce this right. I'd love to hear the counter to that. Yeah, so how can you how can you get to the author's intent? Right. Cuz we are flawed humans and I don't know, maybe I write a poem and mean one thing and you read it and get something else, but so I'm not a literature teacher, so I don't know. How to <laughs> <laughs> I know I I obviously believe in absolute truth. So I think fundamentally and I'm not, you know, literature is not my thing either. I'm a theology guy, but um, I think fundamentally the role of language is to connect two intellects by way of symbol. So one intellect sees something in reality, perceives something in reality, and describes it using symbols that we call words, letters, or even in the fine arts, images, things like that. And so the fundamental assumption is that the mind interacting with reality using these symbols is that whole process is at least quasi reliable. And so if you uh, then use those symbols and communicate them to another intellect, another person, um, that person can then have access to the reality by way of the symbols. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something else I was thinking about as you're talking is not just intention of the author. Um, th- there's an element of, I, I think one huge way in which relativism rears its head is that, you know, here's an author that lived in a certain society at a certain time in a certain historical time period and so far removed from us. And because of that, it can mean something during that time, but there's nothing universal that would apply to us now. And so it might be important to study almost as a matter of history, like, um, yeah, it's great to, to learn about the historical time period of when Shakespeare lived and it's good to learn, uh, it's good to learn about Shakespeare during this time period, but where are we getting at anything universal, anything perennial that does apply to us now? And it's not just that which applies to the past, but has relevance to our life today. 
And certainly that, like in understanding Shakespeare and reading Shakespeare, knowing some of the things about his time can be helpful. But it can also, you can get too caught up in that, that you are missing the point of his plays or his poems insofar as trying to understand things about human nature, about the world and perspective, everything that we should be seeing, things that are certain, certainly constants. So I think that's the key there, too, is that there is something that we call human nature that is outside of ourselves, that we participate in, that we can speak objectively about. Um, and that, that process of using words to describe a reality, using symbols to describe a reality, human nature is one of those realities that can be described and talked about and argued about. And, um, so I, th I think that that's also kind of a fundamental difference between the more relativistic attitude and, and the attitude that we take and people like us take. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, I mean, just a starting point of we discover reality and we conform our lives to it. Objective reality. We don't create reality to sit our, to fit our own subjective desires or what we want to be true about the real world is the mind's conformity with reality is what we strive for in education. And we were talking about a little bit a lot last week is that's what makes education so exciting or at least should make it so exciting is when you discover truths of reality, there should, some, there should be something exhilarating about that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Do you think um, the discovery, the recognition of absolute truth then uh, drives our... Uh, I'm thinking that our, our main purpose then to kind of drill over and over again that absolute truth does exist is to make sure that we don't go down the pitfall of moral relativism so that when they exit school not just in education because practically they're most likely not going to use day-to-day -day things that we're teaching them here but the fact that they have seen truth they've learned that truth exists can therefore lead them to carry on you know good lives because they know that there is moral there's not moral rel relativism there is moral right and wrong so i think the kind of the origin of moral relativism not historically necessary but in each individual i think it starts with other sorts of relativism i think it starts with once the person doesn't believe that truth is accessible objective truth is accessible and communicable then that just simply translates to ethics and morality right and then so what we end up finding is that um, if a person is raised and formed with an objective moral structure, but subjective literature, theology, uh, whatever other discipline you might want to say, well, the person is a whole person and they're not disjointed into different subjects. Mm -hmm. The person is not, you know, separated the way our school day is separated. Right. Mm -hmm. All of these things go to form the person. And then what happens, in my opinion, is that if you have this more uh, relativistic framework for seeing reality, but you were taught these objective morals, I think necessarily you start to see objective morals as right. kind of a cage, an artificial cage mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to the individual. Right. But if you've had this fallback of you know 12 years of being told over and over absolute truth exists and you can know it that when you enter the world and these very tempting 
moral philosophies are being shared with you of moral relativism, which sound appealing. They sound like they, they sound nice. Like they even sound as, reasonable. They a lot. sound reasonable yeah. a lot, and they're not as harsh typically. Um, you, it's it's very easy to go down that road. But knowing that, no, at the end of the day, there is moral objectivity, and I can I can glean that, and I can judge actions, and I have the ability to do that. I don't. You're not going to tell me that I can't judge someone. And it's no, also I can. not. Yeah, it's also not morally reprehensible. Reprehensible. Uh, reprehensible. <laughs> yes. To judge actions in that way. Right it's necessary we're yeah, we're meant to be judging as we live life not not souls but actions it well, is that, right and just yeah mm-hmm. and that's where yeah. the distinction lies is you judge objective actions you can't judge mm-hmm. subjective dispositions you can't see the full picture of circumstances and intentions only god sees that picture but we sh- we can and we should judge objective actions um we can't place play the place of God. He sees the heart. He judges the subjective dimension. But what happens in modern uh, morality, subjective morality is you cut out the object, you cut out what is objective and you're just always moving to circumstances and intentions. Right. And so you can seemingly justify um, evil actions based off good intentions or wild circumstances and you only stay in that realm. And so a typical like ethics class at a secular university is a lot of times you're going to be looking at very crazy thought experiments, mm-hmm. very crazy um, circumstantial uh, data. And then it's, I think there's, whether it's intentional or not, it, it, what it's supposed to do is blur first principles and Indeed. it's supposed to blur the, the objective dimension right. to morality. And just, you know, just thinking about classical education is one of the main purposes we have here is to cultivate virtue and wisdom. And so, you know, last week we were talking about Nicomachean ethics and the reason something like Nicomachean ethics applies today, even though it's so long ago written in such a uh, longer time period in a different culture is Aristotle's talking about something that doesn't change human nature. That's exactly it. So not only does human nature not change, but human nature has uh, in and of itself abstracted from the individual Human nature has a sort of goal, a sort of motion. It's it's heading in a particular direction. Um, I, I think we could we could say that about all of reality is that, that everything is ordered toward something. Certainly, and so thinking about that as a response to relativism or what would set apart classical education, the idea that one there is absolute truth. And we can know it, which is another important part of that. It's not just that there is, but that it is accessible to us, Mm -hmm. both intellectually and morally. But then not only does that shape us fundamentally as humans and understanding human nature, but it informs the way we look at the world around us. Yeah, I have a particular experience that's kind of interesting with regard to that is when I was in community college before I actually went to real college. Um, <laughs> Community college is real college, dude. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> I took a class on philosophy, and it was a great deal of fun. And I got to read uh, Rene Descartes, and um, it was a fascinating class. And basically, what I found was that you don't know whether or not you're in the matrix. Like, you don't know if reality right. is even real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I got to 
real college TM trademark um, <laughs> that I, I found out that that's actually really stupid and ridiculous. <laughs> and it, like, I totally believed it. I just accepted it hook, line and sinker because, you know, Descartes is a, an excellent uh, thinker. He's an excellent writer. I didn't see kind of the stupidity uh, beyond that. Um, and not to mention that's kind of just the atmosphere that I grew up in because I grew up in 21st century, 20th and 21st century America. Yes, yep. Um, so I didn't receive kind of that West, the Western tradition until later. Um, and it, it caused this kind of gullibility uh, to what I think now are very harmful ideologies. Um, but all that is to say, we, we've kind of grown up and, and lived and swam and ate and drank this sort of uh, philosophy that is not coherent with the Catholic faith and not coherent with this idea that we can know truth mm. and that right. truth can set you free. Yeah. You, as you're speaking, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking of my own experience, which is very similar to that of what you're describing is uh, there can be such a, and I think there should be taken to its logical conclusion. There should, there can be such an attitude of despair in the face of the proposition of truth being relative. Uh, and what I mean by that is if that's what the driving force of education, there could be a real like nihilistic view of reality. And sure, you can have the math and the science. Again, you could have the utilitarian approach to education of, well, you start asking like, what's the purpose of things? Why am I here? And again, yeah, okay, get the grades, get the scores, get to the college, make the money. But you're never growing up really grappling with the essential questions that make us human. Um, why am I here? Where am I going? What is man? What is reality? Is there a God? Who is God? All these big questions that aren't aren't addressed or aren't addressed um, in a legitimate way at many institutions. And so for kids to never, kids and students and emerging adults to never in the classroom grapple with those big questions, uh, to me is like education is uh, leads to a certain, done in that way can lead to a certain uh, despair. So how does as a classical school one avoid leading to that despair i could okay so i mean well just this very thing is here's a here's a fundamental starting point that truth is knowable okay and so once you've accepted that then what well then you grapple it's just because truth is knowable doesn't mean it's not difficult to understand and communicate but where do you look well, that's where, yeah, so with a classical education is, um, <laughs> you ever hear that? Wh who, who said something along the lines of, like, we stand on the shoulders of giants? There's a quote. I can't remember um, who that was. It's at the beginning of Newton's Principia. Okay, I thought, okay. Totally. I, thought it, I actually I thought it was Newton. But, um, <laughs> there's an element of, like, the, we don't just emerge in the classroom as 20th century, 21st century. Is one huge thing of classical education is we have so many people who went before us, so many great thinkers who have went before us. As yeah, we we're not flying. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. I Correct. think that's how it goes. And so, you know, one way is which you can, you can find what is tried and tested is uh, avoiding just going with the, the spirit of the age or just whatever's popular or whatever the passing fad is, but go to what is tried and tested. You have a sure guide by, by doing that. 
And not only is it tried and tested, but there's good arguments behind it that we just stopped considering as a society. And so the the modern sense of kind of find your own way and um, uh, the assumption that progressivism is true, that history always progresses toward the better thing, um, is completely wrong. And there's no reason behind it. There's no reason to think that what's necessarily later in history, like our present time, is superior to what came before, like the 1200s. Um, well, and to certainly, um, since you're speaking of history, from a Catholic perspective, the idea of Christ being the Logos, being the incarnation, being the pivotal moment in history, and how everything's either ordered to or from that, that that's important for us to shape, and therefore for the education as well. Yeah, so the the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John one fourteen, and all of a sudden we have a pivotal point in history that is different from any other point in history and should inform every other point in history. Yeah, maybe we can and you know, as we, we got into this last episode, but maybe to, to go a little deeper in is you know, we mentioned like hallmarks of a classical education, but we didn't um, or we introduced what is a Catholic classical education. So um, maybe we could, again, lean into the idea of a Catholic classical education. And talking about Logos, maybe just take a step back is, you know, what does that mean, Logos? Why is that so impactful for a classical education? When we say Logos, what are we talking about here? So for the listener, the, the word Logos, Logos, is the Greek Greek term for word it means word so we find this word logos in the beginning of john's gospel john opens his gospel by saying in the beginning was the logos logos the word and the word was god and the word was with god and all that and then in verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us so when we talk about the logos the word uh that greek term can be translated in a few different ways uh we often translate it as word, but it also has this sense of reason or uh, kind of ordered existence behind it. Um, and not reason like plural reasons, but like reason itself, intelligibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something we've been, you know, I'm teaching the sophomores right now, faith, science, faith and science and reason. It's probably, as of right now, the most philosophical class, other than doing philosophy and theology and literature, like deliberately philosophical class. As of now. As of now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But something we've been talking about is why science was born of the Christian West. And because there's this underlying assumption that reality is intelligible because everything reflects God, who is Logos. And so something we were talking about last episode was there should be a harmony in all the different disciplines and classes you are in. We should not, and I had a really hard time saying this word, compartmentalize. Yes. <laughs> I did not add the syllable. Okay, yes. compartmentalize. Yes, I got it. Okay. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, so like we shouldn't do that in education, but you know something I was thinking about since last week is, okay, every encounter with truth, little t, no matter what discipline it's in, philosophy, math, science, whatever discipline it's in, any encounter with little t truth brings us, whether we know it or not, into an encounter with big t truth logos. And that should be exciting. So why isn't it? I I could see like having exhilarating discussions in a literature class or a theology class, but why, 
why is it that we're not as excited sometimes in science class or math class if we're encountering truth? And I'm just speaking from my own experience because before I switched to philosophy and theology, I was studying uh, biology at a high level and it was there was certain rigor to it, but there wasn't, uh, if I'm honest, there wasn't an excitement that I had. And then I switched over to to what I would say from the dark side to the good side. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I, but... Um, there was such an, ex- I had such an excitement to go to class. Like I yeah. literally would go from class to the library just to write my notes again. And I lived in that library. There was something so exciting about it, but it shouldn't there be something excited, exciting anytime we encounter truth. Certainly. And especially uh, to go back to something else we mentioned last time, the liberal arts uh, trivium and the quadrivium and in the quadrivium, the idea of geometry and also astronomy, that there should be certainly there an excitement and perhaps Mrs. Burton, you'd uh, like to weigh in on that. I, I think math is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I know you um, do. No, but I understand what you're asking. Yeah. I think the way sometimes that these things are presented does not offer the opportunity to get excited about them. Um, and for algebra, algebra one and two are very practical classes. They're not so much, I, they're tools, I would say to study higher mathematics. So it's not as exciting because you're not doing as lo- a lot of discovering of, you know, theorems and, and corollaries and really cool things like that or doing proofs. All words, I definitely know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> you're, okay, so you're more just learning the tools to solve certain problems. Yeah. Um, but in, in geometry, um, which I found to, when I taught it for a few years, I thought was way more exciting to teach than what I'm teaching right now um, because you can get in really deep into logic to talk about converses, inverses, contrapositives, logical syllogisms, and get them to learn the language, which is first just really cool. It's really fun mm-hmm. to, to use that language in my I opinion. I think geometry is more tangible too. To a certain extent, but it's also very imaginary. In fact, as you're going through... Can't have any of these things that were that you discuss in geometry do not exist. In no, life. They, right. When uh, the seniors were going through for logic, and we looked at the beginning of Euclid's Elements and mm-hmm. the very first definition, a point is that which has no part. Mm-hmm. And so I asked one of the students to go up on the board and draw a point. But the problem is, anything you put on the board has a part. <laughs> well, and likewise, <laughs> lines are breathless links. Yeah. But any line you put up on the board has some sort of Link, yeah. yeah, to so it. Te- we most people consider point, line, and plane the three undefined terms, <laughs> and then you have to base. <laughs> but it exists in the mind, right? Something- you can think about they have certain like so they have straightness, they have infiniteness that you can't really grasp, you can't really define. Then they have no dimension. Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. You just have to <laughs> well, think about it. And it gets really exciting because from there, you can build this entire system of theorems and corollaries, and you can come up with it yourself based on just three simple terms, point, line, and plane. Yeah, what I'm wondering is, is there a place, and maybe it's not within actual, like maybe it's not actually within math class. Maybe it's more of a, a philosophy class, but to just take a step back from doing math, let's say, and to look at maybe some of the assumptions or principles you're resting on, just ponder, wow, what is it about numbers? Uh, what is it about, like, there seems to be something universal to numbers that we understand about reality. Uh, we, didn't, we don't create these truths. We discover them. Right. Um, and one, even- despite contrary popular belief, what you said before, like one plus one is always going to equal two. 
why is that? Yeah. There's something uh, universal that you're getting in touch with. Right. And so having conversations like that, I, I think that's exciting when you just take a step back because sometimes you just take things for granted, right? Right. And the unfortunate part is we spend so much time doing Algebra 1 and Algebra 2, which are just tools to kind of get you to do the way more exciting things, which is just using those tools that you now have. You know, the, it's the it's the grammar part. It's the grammar part of classical education you need to learn the rules and it's rigorous and it can get a little intense and it might not be fun for a lot of people but once you have that then when you combine it with physics you start to see all of these insane connections of the world being able to be you know written in the language of mathematics the gravitational equation um lots of other things that i can't think of right now but just (laughs) lots of if you look into it at all it's amazing and it's it, it that goes back to how we know that the world is ordered and intelligible. It's like there's, it's written by some code that so, it's crazy. Yeah. A code that's both mathematical and linguistic. Mm. Uh, and so you have um, from both uh, reason and language, as we were discussing earlier, as well as the mathematical arithmetic geometry, especially as not only can you apply arithmetic to physics, but geometry to the heavens, to the cosmos and looking at right. how everything is ordered. Uh, but that raises another question, uh, Mrs. Burton, as you mentioned. So what exactly is essential to the, ca- the classical education and what's just part of it as a means to the true end? He, he called on you. Yeah, Mrs. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're, I don't know, I don't know if you're raising your hand or not, but he, sure no, she's not. just so. the one who kind of led into that. Yeah. The, um, the non, what's the opposite of, compartmentalization <laughs> you said it right too integration integration yeah, via I'm and sure you pronounce it, right. it correctly thank you yeah you're right yep the integrated <laughs> curriculum um which i think um could come to a head sooner but comes to a head you know later in high school when you're finally learning physics and seeing the the very obvious connection between math and science and um but it so integration is one of the essential uh, elements of classical education. So I, th- I think if we start talking about classical education as an integrated education for the whole person, um, I, th- I think that if we were to start with what's essential, and maybe this is just me getting on my particular soapbox, mm. but if we're trying to form the whole person to order them for the good, then the most essential discipline in a ca- classical education would be PE. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Catholic theology. Hey. Ah. <laughs> Easy. Uh, all right, I got it. You remember what Ned Schneeble said? Those who can't do <laughs> teach. teach. Those who can't teach teach, teach gym, gym. <laughs> <laughs> or run a podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Can I? Yeah. Can. Okay. When I first came to the school, so this is my sixth year, I I saw an impression among students of, it's frustrating to say, but there, there's kind of this impression of theology class, religion class, like it might be fun or exciting, but it should be like super easy and maybe not as important as the other classes. And extra. And extra and add-on. And there's something wrong with the way you frame because every like everything should be leading to theology. Um, we were talking about last week, like the word science in Latin is for knowledge. And Aquinas will talk about how, you know, theology is the highest science. Right. 
and everything is seen in its light and everything leads up to it. And so, yeah, why, why do you think living in 20, 20th, 21st century that religion theology is seen as an extra subject if that doesn't matter that much um, or if it does, it's just it should be super easy, super easy A? Well, I have opinions on that. Yeah. I have lots of opinions. That um, could almost be a whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We probably should do a whole episode on that. But yeah. I think that in the context of what we're talking about, once society began the process of switching from what we now call classical education to what we now call more of a modern educational philosophy, society necessarily stopped form stopped looking at education as forming the whole person. And so education became kind of what I talked about at the very beginning when we started here, this forming of the intellect, either just by bestowing knowledge on the following generation or by, you know, if you're particularly woke, telling kids how to think. And so once education is only about thinking and not about forming the whole person, theology becomes more subjective mm-hmm. because theology is supposed to be the study of God for his own sake. And yet if education is supposed to be forming children for thinking, well, you're going to be forming Protestants and you're going to be forming Buddhists and you're going to be forming Muslims and atheists. Catholic theology isn't so important in that schema in that sort of uh, educational environment that we have formed in uh, the new new model of education. So that's be, that would be why you see in most Catholic schools nowadays a course in world religions or... Exactly, yeah. Mm. So if, if education is just telling people what to think or telling people how to think, then religion is right. at best extra and... At worst, it's like a cultural study. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. A social studies. I really, I, I really think it all boils down to relativism coming into play. Because if you do not believe in a moral good, then how can you believe that we are training young minds for the good to be, you know, good people? Um, which then, if none of that exists, honestly, I don't blame people for not wanting to think about it if if at the end of the day why do i need to know this yeah if at the end of the day if truth doesn't exist that's a terrifying proposition when that boils down to the nothing matters because i can't know anything so why would i why would i spend my time thinking about that horrifying fact that Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna die and then cease to exist i'll spend my time focusing on getting pleasure in this life why would I bother? Yeah, that, and I was thinking, like, the student in the class, like, why am I even here? What's the purpose? Yeah. Well, y- you could at least rest on, well, yeah, okay, I need I need to get to the college. I need the, the, the money. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it could be leading for the life of pleasure, your conception of happiness. And those other things are not really important then. Again, if that's your telos, that's your end, that's what you're going for, then it's you could have this view of, yeah, what's the point? How is this even applied in my life? Right. It's that. And but if, then there's, yeah. the, the other thing, though, is, um, which I don't know if we got it is like, it's just, yeah, when there's nothing that's true, like there's no real truth. There's no hard facts in religion. It's like, why am I even here right. talking about this? And I think it affects, uh, intel, not, yeah, intelligent children more, I think in a, in a very harmful way. So children that are being taught that there is no truth, I think are, are 
there's higher rates of suicide and depression in young people. I think that there's a lot of compounding factors for that. But I think that's a big one is kids that know how to think rationally are being told this. And then they can see the obvious end of that. And they're not going to get so caught up with, well, la, 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 I'll just get the grade. whatever. No, at, at the end of the day, if you're a philosoph- philosophically minded type person, you're, oh, yeah. So I think that's road. exactly right. So I think hypothetically, a person could go to, say, a different Catholic high school mm-hmm. and they could be, you know, formed holistically in this sort of modernistic, relativistic mindset, but also have religion classes on the side that that the totality of their formation then would undercut the religion class, assuming yes. that the religion class is a good religion class, which maybe it's not. Right. Um, but then if they're one of the particularly intelligent students, all right. of a sudden they'll realize that none of this matters. Yep. And all of a sudden uh, you've created a environment that we call Catholic with air quotes around it, but it specifically and almost seemingly intentionally undercuts the faith at every turn. Yep. And that's why then for Catholic classical education, it's important, even though you're taking all the subjects at the same time, they're still ordered towards theology as the preeminent, the highest. Uh, And of course, then as you're saying, following under that, it's handmade philosophy, but then all of the other arts and sciences would correspond, but they're all pushing and leading towards theology. So that, as I mentioned last in the last podcast, uh, Thomas mentions that poetry is the lowest science. But that it's is St. Be- Thomas Aquinas. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I like poetry. Uh, it's the lowest science. It's the beginning. It's the gateway to everything else. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> it's, you have to start there. It forms the imagination. It starts uh-huh. raising these questions that for a literature class, certainly from a Catholic classical perspective, if the students are leaving the class asking theology questions, going to their theology teacher, going home, they're pondering they those do things. a lot. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> it's a successful class. That's awesome. That's exactly what they should yeah. be doing. That's great. I want to talk well, about poetry now. Because <laughs> well, obviously not Future topic. Uh, yeah, because okay. I would get it. Um, well, that, okay. We'll be here all night. And maybe maybe if we're, yeah, if we got to wind down, like here's maybe a, a good place to wrap up. And we introduced this idea last week of theology is not just exercising the mind thinking about God. Theology correctly ordered leads you to a union with God, which includes your mind, but the totality of your whole person. Mm-hmm. Contemplation. Contemplation. Um, so if theology, if all of education, especially theology, is leading you to the sacraments, is leading you to prayer, then we're doing our job. Like I, I'll tell my uh, students in, in theology class, first day of class every year is, if at the end of this school year, you have been brought in a closer relationship to Jesus Christ and his church, if you have a desire to read scripture more, if you have a desire to pray more, if you are approaching the sacraments more, I've done my job. And you could say, because of this class, you are closer to Jesus Christ, then I've done my job. And I think if you have that right disposition, you'll get the A, or at least close to it, because you have first things first and second things come in. But if you get the A and you're just doing, you know, what do I need to know for the test? And it's just head knowledge at the end of the day, 
you're kind of like, was it in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, the theologian who's in hell who doesn't want to go to heaven because he'd rather hear a lecture on heaven than actually go to heaven. <laughs> if I'm, we, we could end like that where we're just talking about God, but we're never listening to God. We're never talking to God. It's just talking about. And so would you say like the study of theology in a the classroom, even that has a higher goal or higher end at the end of the day? Am I right? Am I onto something? Yes, absolutely. Well, so also, though, I think that theology is, in and of itself, the totality, that's the wrong way to say it, theology is, <laughs> in and of itself, what we do in heaven. And so the theology classroom ah. is supposed to be kind of this model for, if you want to go to heaven, this is what you're going to get. Um, the only thing heaven is, is seeing and contemplating the face of God himself. Mm. It's not like naked baby angels with the harp store <laughs> and clouds. Thank God. <laughs> creepy. <laughs> it is uncomfortable, yes. <laughs> but so is theology. <laughs> well, and something to go back to later, since you're tying to philosophy, as Plato said, beautiful things are difficult. Right. Ooh. What does that mean? <laughs> you can't just end on that. Next time. <laughs> that might have been a mic drop. I don't know. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> These microphones that's, are on stands. That's cool. Yeah. Drop the stand. Yeah. We got to start making a list of. Uh, now I really want to talk about poetry. Um, and okay. One. I, I got to just beauty. say one line. Okay. Because it's still in my mind. Speaking of Plato, maybe think of Socrates. And you got that quote of like, the unexamined life is not worth living. Right. Yes. And students, not saying every class, every teacher is going to be so exciting, but if you come in to the school day and you come to school and you're, you want, you have the disposition that you want to know about reality, you want to know, um, education can and will become exciting if you are examining, you're not living the unexamined life, but you're living an authentically human life by asking the questions, then um, education is no longer boring. I'll tell students like, if you think education is boring, yeah, there might be a role to play in the teacher in the class and whatever, but it might just be that you're boring <laughs> <laughs> because you don't like, you're going to get out of this, what you bring into it. And if you want to live out what Socrates says, right? The unexamined life is not worth living. If you come to school grappling, asking the questions, it'll be a lot better. You got to be here anyway, so you might as well do that. Right. I think there's a lot to say about modern distractions coming into play with. Like distractions like, like a vacuum cleaning. Yeah. Apparently our janitor's <laughs> <was> here. <laughs> I will say though, coming yeah. from, uh, I, I, so for those of you who don't know, I went here when it was Sierra Madre, back when it was in a shopping center. And it is so refreshing to come back and see that our janitor is vacuuming the hallway, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Shout refreshing. out to Joe Cruz, the yeah. man. It's the refreshing message. to the see myth, the, the caliber of student compared to a public school that we have here. The, the questions, like Miss um, Ost the other day was so stoked to hear kids talking um, in the parking lot about one of your theology classes versus you know, oh, you know, video games or something like that, which was, I thought was amazing to hear something like that. Yeah. We do attract and breed a different caliber of student. And I, li I like that. It's That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, what were they talking about? Do 
the souls of aborted children go to heaven before math class. Are like, you yeah. trying to open up a, another Today can of worms right now? Whoa. How much time? <laughs> it was like a week ago. Sorry, but yeah. Anyways, <laughs> the rational mind desires to learn. Yeah. At the end of the day, indeed. And at the end of the day, truth is noble, and it's worth the pursuit of truth. Yes. And that's even more important than truth being noble is that it's worth the pursuit. Yes. But all the, okay, real quick, just because all the little <laughs> stuff, because I'm like thinking of my students and all the annoying stuff, you know, homework, getting it in on time, putting the right heading, blah, 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 blah. What's the point of all of that? Is that part of the truth? Like, what is that? Well, okay. I was just, again, um, <laughs> The first and second things is if you have the right disposition, it's not that like education is not going to be laborious. There's always going to be a laborious element to education. And part of forming virtue is the discipline and the rigor of cultivating the mind. And so um, that's always going to be there and it's not always going to be pleasant. But if you have the right end goal in mind, like what's that phrase? Like if you have a why, you'll always be able to do the how. And so if you have the proper why, then you're willing to go through the how even when it's extremely grueling. Perhaps grueling like wrapping up this episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that's a good note to end on is that this is all worth it. All the things yeah. we're talking about, you know, the, the person who maybe is not interested might find that these things are not that important. They might assert that these things are not that important, not worth the work to read the books, to have the discussions, but they are worth it. And that's why our families send their kids to St. Joseph Academy. And I think that's probably where we should leave the conversation for now. That was excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm Mr. We English. Happily ever Mr. Hudson. <laughs> Mrs. Burton. This is Mr. Heinzel. Mr. Murray. And thank you for listening to the Crusader Talk Show. Check us out on Instagram. Let us know what you think and leave some comments or questions.